Hello and welcome to episode eight of the Talk Data to Me podcast. Uh, today I've got Peter and Catherine with me. Uh, do you want to say hello to everybody? Peter? Catherine? Hello. Hello. Uh, so we have a fairly full podcast today talking about a couple of topics. Um, we've got Shrems 2 because it's mandatory. We have to talk about Shrems 2 because we do work in data protection, but it's kind of important we talk about it as well. Um, but more importantly, from Shrems 2 and from kind of the, the last few months of, of dealing with COVID, we've some good examples of disruption in business and the dis disruption in how we do business and the implications of that for how we manage and think about data. And we want to talk about that today as well. And we're going to roll that then into a bit of a conversation about uh, data ethics and data literacy, because we've seen some lies, damn lies and statistics over the past few months in relation to COVID and other things. And uh, we need to be clear as to uh, what we mean when we're talking about data, talking with data and doing stuff with data. So without further ado, um, let's kick off and, and let's let's pull the band-aid off quickly. Let's get the, let's talk about Shrems 2 and then move on to talk about other more fun stuff. Um, for those of you listening who aren't aware, uh, the Shrems 2 case is the mistitled case of uh, Data Protection Commissioner versus Facebook and Shrems. It's, it's a case taken by the Irish DPC to the European Court of Justice for the purposes of getting clarity on the decision rights, responsibilities and uh, authorities that supervisory authorities in the European Union have in relation to making decisions on cross-border data transfers. The Irish Data Protection Commissioner put forward about a dozen questions. Buried within those questions was one question about whether Privacy Shield as a thing could still continue. Uh, but the rest of the questions were relating to uh, standard contractual clauses and other cross-border data transfer mechanisms. Now, this is the, the, the follow-through from the 2015 case, which struck down uh, Safe Harbor. And I am having an incredible feeling of deja vu. Um, because what we have coming out of the case is Privacy Shield is dead, but the Europe, US Department of Commerce is insisting that it isn't dead. It's just having arrests and appointing for the fjords. Um, and we now have questions over standard contractual clauses with some mixed guidance coming from supervisory authorities at the moment, but it all boils down to a somewhat complicated uh, challenge for organizations in Europe who are holding data and processing data about people who are using third-party services that operate out of the US, but also third-party services operating out of other jurisdictions as well uh, in terms of the standards we need to be applying and considering. So Catherine, as the, uh, as the, the tame American on our, on our team, um, what's your take on all of this? Well, uh, like yourself, Dara, I was completely unsurprised by the uh, ruling. Uh, what I found very interesting was relating to the standard contractual clauses because uh, basically what the European Courts of Justice did there was cut the Gordian knot uh, in you know, saying there actually isn't a paradox when we're talking about the question of whether standard contractual clauses are fine. Uh, the question is the application of those clauses in context. Uh, so this is where it comes 
much more a uh, global question of uh, international data transfers, not just to the US, but to any third country that has not been assessed to be safe by the European Commission, is that you have to understand uh, the as the European Court of Justice called it, the laws and practices of the third country that you're going to be uh, sending data to on the basis of those contractual clauses. Because if you can't actually, with a contract, guarantee the safety, then you can't use the contract. And this should have been very, very clear just logically, but uh, you know, people were using contract clauses as a fig leaf rather than looking for adequate protections. So uh, the, this clarity is new. It's uh, very, very logical, but it's really tough for everyone because nobody's actually been uh, looking at it uh, as actually requiring protections rather than um, you know, uh, making sure that we have the paperwork. Yeah, I think it's important to be, to, to, to be clear that in, in relation to transfers to the US, the, the issue is whether the transfers, whether the processing in question comes within the sphere of uh, Section 700, 702 of the Foreign Intelligence uh, Surveillance Act, um, which covers quite a broad array of processing electronically, not just communications data, but data that is being, being transferred for electronic processing purposes. Uh, so it's quite broad, which is the problem. Um, and the key issues in the, in the case ultimately hinge on the ability of individuals to obtain adequate redress and adequate legal rep adequate representation through courts, etc., uh, if their rights are infringed. Um, and it's interesting to note that US citizens are strictly speaking exempted from those that have protections from that surveillance unless they are caught because their data has gone out of the US and is coming back in through a provider um, in which case they, they would get caught this is the, the backdoor uh, element of the surveillance regime in the US so it's it's tricky it's complicated and then we have Australia who outlawed encryption uh, which makes it even more complicated again and again, the, the uh, going back and forth uh, just by the nature of uh, cloud systems and networks and where data goes, you're pretty much talking most data sent over uh, networks and you know, any, anything using the cloud, but definitely anything using Google uh, or other similar you know, Amazon uh, networks uh, where things aren't just retained within the uh, country borders. The application of the law clearly allows for a, a large data grab. Yeah. So, Peter, what's your take? Uh, it's interesting. You know, uh, there's an article in the Financial Times today uh, about how the EU uses tax evasion rules. Uh, to prevent sm smaller companies competing in the financial circuit, smaller countries competing in the financial services markets, uh, and certainly I've just been blogging. Uh, you know that really you're at, yeah we're we're looking at a geostrategic problem uh, of competing economic entities. Uh, you know trying to outdo each other, and the EU has settled on regulation as its preferred tool. Uh, as opposed to raw aggression or passive aggression in the case of China and America, America and China. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I tend to view it all from that uh, perspective. 
uh, you know, where the European Union is seriously encouraging people to move their data into Europe and to support local European businesses uh, in a manner, you know, in whatever manner they can. Uh, having said that, uh, you know, Europe, unlike many other countries, uh, Singapore, China, uh, and now the Middle East, uh, has consistently refused to develop its own standalone finance and payments network. Uh, now, for a while, the credit card companies had some sort of, you know, uh, Chinese walls between the EU operations uh, and others. And at one stage, you know, they were split out into different companies. Uh, but that's never proved a satisfactory arrangement. There has never actually been the decoupling uh, of the US and the European payments networks uh, you know, that would need to happen uh, in order for you know, there to be the level of separation uh, that EU law would seem to require. So you know, to a certain extent, some of this uh, will have to be kicked back to government, will have to be kicked back ultimately to the Commission. Uh, but you know, uh, from a strategic point of view, uh, you know, you know, the, the EU needs to decide you know what it wants to be in terms of finance and the financial services market. You know, whether you know the euro can offer itself as a credible global currency uh, in an environment where you know, the dominant player at the moment, uh, you know, is moving towards decline. Uh, that's that. That's a fascinating macro level perspective. The other angle on that peter is that it, the eu is has been viewed historically and traditionally viewed as being the uh the, the hallmark and bastion of, of good data protection practices and good data protection legislation a lot of the emerging uh, legislation in sub-saharan africa and other parts of the world is modeled on eu principles and frameworks yes um, merely a continuation of a very you know old and long strategy of you know europe you know europe realizing that you know if it can set the quality marks uh, you know ce marking for manufacturing uh it would be where all this started uh yeah if you want to sell your product on a global level your your, your components must pass the european standards Exactly. It's, yeah, it's simply a broadening of the strategy you know, into other areas. Uh, yeah, it's great for the consumer. It's great for, uh, you know, and, and it's great for increasing, uh, you know, certainly the level of standardization uh, across the world. Uh, but, to, you know, to, you know, one must expect all economic entities uh, to be valuing their interests first. Exactly. Um one of the the other things that's come out of the, an ongoing sort of criticism or comment from U.S. commentators is is that European Union doesn't apply the same rigor and scrutiny to its own intel to, to the intelligence activities of its own member states. So, for anyone who isn't aware, uh, strictly speaking, national security aspects of European member states are outside the scope of European Union competencies. So, it's not an EU Commission uh, element. However because our data protection principles uh, are underpinned by the Charter of Fundamental Rights and by the treaties, um, the European Court of Justice can rule on those things. But what we're seeing now um, is that recently the German Constitutional Court has ruled that the foreign intelligence gathering operations of the German intelligence services are subject to uh, a need to comply with the German constitutional law on fundamental rights and data protection and privacy. 
And there is a case uh, coming before the European Court of Justice in the next few months uh, by, from Privacy International and a couple of other uh, NGOs looking at that specific question of um, what can the, the intelligence agencies actually do? And the Advocate General's opinion in that uh, Privacy International case is interesting because it, the, it is, presents a, a legal argument that I, I think is interesting, that while the activities of the intelligence agencies might be outside the scope of European Union law primarily, the activities of private companies who might be compelled by or required by uh, intelligence agencies to provide them with data aren't. So any legislation that's enacted requiring uh, data to be given or to be retained by organizations or provided by organizations to intelligence agencies still has to comply with the fundamental principles around necessity and proportionality and transparency, uh, which is largely what we've seen from the German uh, Constitutional Court recently. And we hopefully will see some clarity coming from the European Court of Justice in the next few months on that. But I think that is an interesting element of secret squirrels and spies can do what they want. But once they start asking uh, the, for the cooperation of the bastions of commerce, that has to come under an effective oversight. And when we look at what was being decided in relation to the Schrems 2 case, I would suspect the Court of Justice is going to agree with their advocate general um, because that is ultimately what they're asking for on the US side is that those laws that compel and require um, private or private companies uh, or other operators to hand over data or give access to data need to be subject to appropriate scrutiny, appropriate transparency and appropriate modes of redress. So it's interesting times ahead. From a pragmatic perspective, we have uncertainty. We have uncertainty. We have lots of uncertainty. We have lots and of uncertainty. And, and within that, though, from a practical and pragmatic perspective, what are the three things you'd suggest that people need to do, Catherine, uh, to, to move this forward? Yeah, one of the things that's incredibly important for data controllers to do right now is to look at their various business processes that may indeed involve sending data across borders. Uh, things like payment providers. This is something that is essential to business continuity. If you can't have your clients and customers pay you, uh, it's a difficult to provide a service. It's difficult to continue as a company. Uh, but the, one of the questions that you need to look at is what options are there that you, know, you can uh, use those processes in a compliant manner. So this is something that we in Castlebridge are looking at ourselves, but uh, knowing that we do have this uncertainty when it comes to uh, how things are going and that, that we do have this uh, you know, very clear ruling with, with Strems 2 that we need to be looking at where our personal data is going, where it's exposed, and assessing the uh, possible ways that you can continue in compliance. You need to know where, what data you are processing, where it is going and uh, find out if there are other options that you need to switch to. Peter, what would your three top three things be or top two things be for anyone who's struggling with this now? Uh, have a look at who your service providers are, uh, work out which ones are substitutable uh, to reduce your risk and the ones that aren't substitutable either look for you know, some form of remediation uh or you know in the case of its payment processing you know wait for the government to uh build their own network yeah i, I think there my three things are 
your register of processing activities is your absolute guide, guidebook here. You should have identified in Europa uh, where there is cross-border data transfer. Uh, you might have recorded where it's going, but you've recorded there is cross-border data transfer. It's then important to look at the basis you're relying on for that transfer. If you're relying on Privacy Shield, it is gone. You have to find another basis. If you're relying on standard contractual clauses, it's worth asking your provider what assurances they can give you that there is nothing that they are aware of in the receiving country where they are based, where the transfers are going to, uh, that would impact on your on the ability of you to stand over the uh, the protections for personal data. Um, it's important that controllers make the, ask those questions, and it's important if you're a processor that you have asked those questions yourselves and you're in a position to answer it. Um, and I do think that what we are going to see, much like what happened after Safe Harbor, there was a, a sudden uptick in the provision of services like um, email marketing from European companies. It is a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs in the European Union to start providing services to do things. Uh, and I do think that we, we may find a medium to long-term uh, traditionally US, headquarter, US headquartered companies uh, moving either their data or, given the complications caused by the Cloud Act, their entire operations to Europe in the medium to long term. Unless, of course, we get a shiny new president and we actually get some action on the fundamental issues uh, underpinning all of this. And I've written two blog posts about it last month. They're on the website. Uh, details for those posts will be in the, uh, the information supporting the podcast on the Castlebridge site. Just as a comment about uh, looking at your service providers and your contracts when it comes to questions of cross-border data transfers, you may have identified a you know, first cross-border data transfer, but it's really important to dig into uh, possible onward transfers and sub-processes as well. This is something I've seen quite a bit in recent contracts that uh, is an area of risk for uh, companies contracting service providers. Exactly. So we, much like uh, Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook relationship uh, status with the European, European Union, it's complicated. But this is a really good example of disruption, something happening that people see coming down the, down the tracks, but no one is really ready to move or ha has moved uh, to anticipate it appropriately. Everyone uh, with, with Privacy Shield, even with Safe Harbor, I remember there was a, a very well-known high-profile lawyer who, until the day before the ruling, was still insisting that the European Commission wouldn't strike down Safe Harbor. Lots of people were saying Privacy Shield was too big to fail. Um, but we also have a pandemic, and there's been disruption. Um, business of, businesses have had to turn 90 degrees, um, and when we've shaken the universe, the loose bits have all fallen off. Um, Peter, what have we learned over the past few months about business continuity and disruption from a data point of view? I suppose the most important thing we've learned is that you know we had originally uh, or most organizations uh you know had planned their data flows and their information uh you know on the basis that people would be in the office uh, and certainly among my clients there's been a lot of scrambling around uh you know to then be able to provide those services externally to people working from home uh and, you know the the uh, unless it has been done well, and I suppose unless you already have a, you know, a decent business continuity plan, uh, you know, organizations have run into issues, you know, particularly around security, 
uh, in the remote working environment, but there are also legal issues around, you know, uh, who owns the connections, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the major disruption, but, you know, that can be seen in, you know, the value of Zoom, the value of Hisense, the value of all these various products that are making it easier for us to work from home. Yeah, and that that's the the key thing. We've we've seen that when there's a disruption, um, people adapt, people improvise, people work work around the immediate problem. Um, talking with uh, John Ladley uh, on the, about this last week, his comment was that we've we've basically gone through the equivalent of five to seven years of digital transformation in companies, and we did it in a fortnight. Um, the challenge there is that there's tactical changes, tactical things have been done. Um, to make it sustainable, um, how we handle and understand data and how we manage data needs to be addressed. Otherwise, the fi quick fixes we put in aren't gonna work long-term. Catherine. Yeah, one of the uh, interesting changes there that you mentioned sort of in the digital transformation uh, is that these, uh, adaptive uh, technologies that we now have uh, moving towards remote working are resulting in a lot of our informal conversations now being data. So we suddenly have a lot more data as uh, Peter mentioned there with Zoom, with, with all of our remote working uh, capacities that we're now you know, really in many ways required to use. Uh, we need to consider that uh, all of our conversations, all of our communications, uh, things that might have just been in the water cooler are now data that needs to be managed. And so we've got more data to manage and we need to consider what the purpose of that is, where it goes, and uh, how we can ensure it, you know, that these processes are properly governed. Yeah, and, and that brings with the, the fact that we haven't really governed data well in most organizations. And I, I keep going back to the statistic from UCC from a few years ago, less than 3% of organizations have data that's fit for purpose. Um, and that's the sort of thing that gets worked around in organizations with people having conversations. And the, the, this, the projects we've done on data strategy over the past few months, Peter, we found quite significant hidden costs in organizations because of the way in which they historically managed data. And in a remote working context, in a distributed working context, those workarounds are going to be a lot harder to do and will take more time. What do you think? Yes, no, I entirely agree with you. Uh, you know, the, you know, one of the major issues about this working from home process uh, is that it is no longer possible to fix things on the fly. You know, you can't pop over to somebody's desk, pop into somebody's office and get them to do it. Uh, you know, everything, you know, has to work, you know, you know systemic, systemically, there are fewer possible workarounds. Yeah, and like we we've we've been through that experience, and we've we've planned like we're we're planning better, we're we're structuring our calendars and our plans better internally, um, and we've also planned for the impromptu. Um, like we're fantastic at planned spontaneity in Castlebridge these days, um, where we have our, our internal three internal calls a day and where we're chatting. But that's that started as a survival tool to make sure we were. I wanted to make sure that people could at least connect to other humans. Uh, when we started working remotely first, but I found it to be very, very useful from the point of view of having some form of in connection and engagement where we can have those informal conversations and chats um, during the day, uh, albeit in a slightly more planned way than would have happened in the past. 
But one of the key challenges with all of that is these tools we're using, these tools we're using are all caught by the Schrems decision. I Zoom relies on standard contractual clauses for its data transfer. Microsoft is relying on its binding corporate rules and standard contractual clauses for data transfer. Um, and it highlights the, the challenges once data is going to the US. And with Zoom, the default setting is it's going to the US and China, potentially. Um, but understanding the tools and understanding what's underneath the tools becomes very, very important so that the solutions you put in for your, to enable your remote working uh, aren't disrupted and you're not having to constantly firefight uh, waves of disruption like the, the king in Monty Python and the Holy Grail who built this castle in the swamp. We don't want the first three to fall down and sink. We need to have something that people are able to use consistently and constantly in the organization so that the new habits and new ways of working can bed in. Um, any thoughts on that, guys? Or is that just me rambling? Well, that was basically uh, what I started with there, that uh, all of our informal conversations are now data that must be governed properly. So yeah, good expansion on that. <laughs> um, what about monitoring people remotely, um, monitoring workers? Is that something that organizations should be concerned about these days? It's definitely they should, something they should be concerned about from a compliance perspective. Uh, and also, from a questioning their priorities and their strategies perspective. Uh, one of the things that reasons that we have a tendency for people to see the, uh, the uh, introduction of remote monitoring is a uh, feeling of a need to be able to supervise in the way that managers might have stood over the shoulders of people working in person. Um, but we have 30 odd years of uh, studies showing that uh, surveillance of workers in a, and micromanagement uh, is actually contrary to uh, productivity. So uh, it's again, what, what is your priority? Are you looking for good outcomes of productivity or are you looking for the ability to see exactly what your workers are doing? Uh, so you know, uh, that's one of the things you need to look at there. What, is your company's priority and strategy and why would you implement particular remote monitoring tools? Um, yes. So uh, yeah, again, making sure that you have good management of your processes to ensure the outcomes you want rather than buying in new technology because it makes you feel good. So very much a process data and outcomes driven approach rather than a tools and shiny based approach. Peter, would you disagree or uh, no, I wouldn't disagree. Uh, yeah, I think it, to a certain extent, it depends on your industry sector. Uh, you know, different industry sectors have different concerns and priorities around uh, monitoring, uh, and I suspect they have different levels of staff engagement, uh, which makes things more, you know, the, these sorts of things more or less viable. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly for, you know, People involved in financial, professional services, insurance, uh, you know, the services and you know, the, you know, the professional services industries in general, uh, you know, it should be possible, uh, you know, to manage people by you know, output objective deadline. Uh, but I suppose, you know, the, the, the issue around that, uh, you know, is that you're moving to less human based metrics. Uh, you know, the, 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 those types of metrics tend to be less understanding, you know, of the ebb and flow of humanity. 
but that's the you know the, the, uh, as one loses the you know the socialization the direct personal relationships uh you know in, in an increasingly isolated environment uh you know one only has left you know if, if, if one can't make judgments uh you know based on what one can see and what one can you know what then one can only base judgments on the data uh, but basing judgments on the data historically uh you know has led to either unexpected or for some people unpleasant outcomes well as, as wr is deming famously said uh anyone any manager who who runs their business on the basis of the visible numbers alone soon finds himself with no numbers and no business exactly um and that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the concern you know you have to balance these two things I mean, one of the challenges that we have there is figuring out how to manage humans in a remote environment and how to ensure that we have that human connection, the ability to continue uh, you know, managing in a way that uh, we remember humans on the other side of things, that we are able to ensure communication. Catherine? Yeah, you still there? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I, I thought I'd lost. I, somewhat ironically, at the point where you said we need to ensure communication, everything went deathly quiet on my end, and I wasn't sure if I'd lost my connection. <laughs> um, Same happened here, yeah. So, uh, yes, we, we, we have now uh, ensured that we have continuing communication. <laughs> yes, that's fantastic. And yeah, I think yeah, as, well, as we move to, you know, you know the, the, the more remote working we have, you know, the more self-management becomes important. Uh, because the, you know there isn't anybody else. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, as businesses, you know, we're, yeah, we're interested in outcomes which lead to profitability. Exactly. Uh, that's yeah, and that should be, uh, you know, what we base our judgments on. So, th this kind of brings us to an interesting overlap between, um quality systems thinking, organizational design thinking, and ethics to an extent, because what you're talking about there, Peter, is, and what Catherine's been talking about as well, is, is ultimately restoring pride in the job well done on the part of the individual worker, which is one of Deming's points for transformation, and not micromanaging people into oblivion with data. Um, we've heard a lot about... Uh, We've heard a lot about data ethics and ethical information management over the past few two years or so, quite a lot more since uh, Catherine and I published the book. Um, our, our niche hobby has gone mainstream, apparently. Um, and Catherine, congratulations on being invited to join the Scottish Government's uh, Ethical uh, Oversight uh, Committee for its digital strategy. Um, in that context, are we reaching a tipping point on this discussion about data ethics or are we simply making the same mistakes that we made in the quality management world and in the data quality world over the past 50 years where there's lots of talk, but no action? And yes, Catherine, think, I'm asking you that. Yeah, I, I think we're at the very least reaching a crisis and inflection point. I'm not sure whether the uh, results of actions that we're starting to see will uh, you know, be a success or a failure, but we're definitely seeing uh, very high level and uh, attempts at practical application 
of the questions that we've been asking uh, and you know, serious consideration of the uh, effects of you know, the, the uh, data processing that we're seeing and the, the need for uh, ethical underpinnings of those actions. But at, at this point, I'm still seeing it more as a crisis rather than uh, something where I'm seeing a resolution. Peter, have the tree huggers, have the tree huggers got it wrong or are we starting to get, get some tra traction? And what do you think the barriers might be to actually really having a change? Particularly as we're seeing so much stuff being disrupted, it's a perfect opportunity for good change to embed itself. What do you think needs to happen? Uh, you know, the barrier, uh, you know, as always, is you know when you know the change, you know, is is coming into conflict with the business model. Uh, yeah, it's very difficult to ask businesses to make less money. Indeed, indeed, um, and I think that's the the key challenge is, is understanding how to make money by doing this stuff in the right way and and doing the right things, but I think. The big barrier I see is that we still have lots of people running around talking and we've lots of people subdividing and slicing and dicing the world of ethics in the context of information management into AI ethics. Now, I live in the country, AI, AI ethics for me is having warm hands when you approach the bull. Uh, software ethics, yeah, that's that divide and conquer, let's stick a, a label on, let's stick an additional label on it, stuff isn't gonna really work. Um, and I keep looking back at what Catherine and I wrote in the book um, nearly three years ago when I wrote the chapter on, on quality systems and ethics. And I compared what Joseph Duran said in the 1980s about the quality movement, and I mapped it to what was, being, what was being said three years ago in the information ethics world. And nothing has moved on, in my view. We're still at the shallow end of the pool. Um, and what gives me some cause for concern is that in the data quality world, in nearly 30 years, we have not moved the ball forward. Um, and in the data quality world, it's different because there actually is a tangible impact on the bottom line for organizations of poor quality data. But even with that, a lot of organizations don't buy the bullet and move on. And I think we, we need to learn those lessons uh, to, to try and bed things in. Um, what, what's the big mistake you think people are making, Catherine, at the moment? Um, it depends on which level you're talking about. One, one of the things that I think we're seeing a lot is uh, in the uh, areas of innovation and uh, in you know, just the venture capital model of doing things at, at a national level, there needs to be a way to incentivize uh, ethical uh, processing of data and uh, to incentivize businesses which uh, build their products and services on an ethical model. Uh, a lot of the uh, startups that uh, you know, start looking at you know, try, trying to uh, do uh, you know, responsible and ethical innovation uh, seem to be overtaken by data grab uh, once they move into the, uh, you know, the, the uh, needing to build uh, funding and uh, you know, get uh, capital funding. So that, that is an uh, ongoing serious problem there. Um, Another thing that I'm seeing is, uh, again, understanding what is ethical and uh, making sure that we bring it in and through the organization, not just ethics washing things. So uh, again, you know, 
building your business in a way that actually does serve the needs of clients in, in a good responsible manner. That's, it's difficult. It's uh, something that you know, has not been you know, formally uh, you know, brought in in many cases into most businesses at, at most levels. So there, there's, you know, there, there are serious challenges when it comes to uh, you know, ethical data usage there. Peter, anything to add? No, I think that's all a great idea. <laughs> so definitely, um, I think it is a case of, when I, when I look at it, I see, again, going back to Deming, classic Deming seven deadly sins of, of, of business here um, in terms of changing the business models or evolving business models to, to, so that people can still make money doing things in, in an ethical way. Um, the focus on short term, uh, is probably one of the, the challenges when you're dealing with venture capitalists who do want to get an exit in two to three years. Uh, that makes it difficult to, uh, to, to, to have those long-term conversations and uh, not compromise on principles. Uh, ultimately, everything is a compromise, but uh, we need to understand how to evolve that. Otherwise, we do run the risk of adopting form over, over function and having all the trappings of ethics with all the governance boards you you can think of, uh, with no actual outcome, no actual delivery. Peter Drucker uh, famously said that when you're living through turbulent times, the problem isn't the turbulence, it's trying to apply the logic of the previous times to solving the problems you're being faced with. Okay, we've had a fun chat about a number of topics today. Catherine, what would you like to say to close off your, your musings for the month? There's fun times ahead. We've got a lot of uncertainty, uh, but those challenges uh, can also in many ways be opportunities to improve your processes, improve your business, and uh, find new ways to do things better in a way that benefits your organization as well as your clients and customers. I suppose my final thoughts are not very different from most of my thoughts, uh, you know, which it is that it's important to look at the you know, strategic environment. Uh, to understand the drivers that uh, are affecting your business uh, and then to you know, take the best decisions you can uh, to ensure the continuity and growth of that organization. You have been listening to the Castlebridge Talk Data To Me podcast. Additional resources and information relating to this podcast will be available on the Castlebridge website, www.castlebridge.ie.